This is Leaving Laodicea with Steve McCraney, and this is a podcast for those who realize that apathetic, lukewarm, flannel graph faith just isn't going to cut it in the chaos that surrounds us today. We need something more, something different. So join us as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. I want to just take a moment, if I can, before we begin today, and kind of recap where we've been, what we've looked at, and the direction that we're heading. As I've shared with you, my gift is basically to expositorily preach through books of the Bible, and we've preached through many, many books. Some of them I wish I could do again, such as the book of Revelation or the book of uh, Romans and stuff of that nature. And for a season now, God has, hasn't let us go through just a single book, although that will be changing on Tuesday. Instead, he's been trying to show us areas in Scripture where we need to change, where we can have a deeper passion and a deeper love for him. So let me just give you a, a quick review of where we've been. You know, for the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about the 70 resolutions of Jonathan Edwards. This is just a prototype. This is just something that he did over a number of years as a young man. He even added to those. And what he did is he decided that there were certain areas of his life he wanted to commit to the Lord. And so he made these resolutions, these determined decisions, come what may, I'm not going to change. This is the way it is regarding a spiritual life. I passed them out. To all of you, we've talked about them for a couple weeks. I've asked you to share some of the resolutions that maybe you have made regarding uh, your relationship with the Lord, and that is, some of you have done that. Some of you have shared it on uh, Tuesday and Wednesday night, and I greatly appreciate that. I hope for all of us that we're taking it seriously, because we are living. I mean, every day that passes, we are living in such troubling times. As Christians, you know, the church is apostatizing right before our eyes. People don't even care much anymore. We've got movements that are coming in that uh, are undermining the very foundation of the church. The Christian faith today is nominal at best for most believers. If you go overseas and talk to a believer and they come over to America, they're shocked. They're shocked at how callous we take the things of God and how we've reduced God to a bumper sticker slogan or a t-shirt rather than the sovereign almighty God that he is. Last week, we talked about Revelation chapter two. We talked about the letter at the church to Ephesus. Remember the heights from where you fall and repent and do the things you did at the first. Uh, Tuesday, we talked about what it meant to be a slave, which is exactly what the word doulos means. As, as I was beginning to prepare for the book of Jude, I couldn't get past the word bondservant. We spent the entire time just talking about what it meant to be a slave. And for those of you that were there who said that, and I've, I've talked to a few of you, that you've woken up the next day realizing I am a slave. And if I'm a slave, how come I'm making all the decisions about my life? And how come I'm just relegating God to somebody who I'll kind of go to for advice if I get in a jam? And we've kind of tried to take this spiritual life just a little bit deeper. And it's just a continuation of what we've been talking about for the entire year. We spent a lot of time a couple of years ago talking about the Holy Spirit, talking about who he is and not this relegated third person of the Trinity to obscurity here, but, you know, equal with God himself. It's the Holy Spirit that interacts with us on a daily basis. It is not Jesus. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. The Father is on his throne. He's left another helper, another paraclete, another comforter uh, to be with us forever. Who is the Holy Spirit? Who is, in effect, Christ Jesus? If you've seen one, you've seen them all. They're separate, yet one. And if you want that explained, you'll need to ask him when you get to heaven. We talked about how to be filled by him. How does that happen? Is being filled with the Holy Spirit an expected life that we're supposed to live? Yes, all the time. Be filled with the Holy Spirit, and and yet it very seldom happens, or it happens and floats away like in the Old Testament. So how do we do that? How do we practice spiritual breathing, which puts us in a position where we are most open not to grieve the Holy Spirit, that I'm 
when I find myself grieving him, when a sin happens, I lose my temper, I do something I shouldn't do, I recognize that immediately, I breathe out a confession of sin to him. Lord, please forgive me for that. Please forgive me for the attitude. Please forgive me for the words that came out of my mouth. Please forgive me for my my heart towards that person or, or doubt or fear, or whatever it is. And, and then we know by 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, that unlike us, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you breathe in his forgiveness. You breathe in his grace. You breathe in back the fellowship with his spirit. And if you learn to do this, which I hope, you are, on an ongoing basis, you find that your intimacy with the Lord is closer than it's ever been before. We started talking about revival. We started talking about trying to recapture a 10. A 10 is not judged by anybody else's standard. A 10 is judged by your standard. Whenever you were the closest to the Lord here, then that's, that's as high or as close as you've ever been. And if you're below that, we need a revival to bring you back up to at least where you were at some point in life and then beyond. We talked about national revivals and we talked about spiritual revivals. And what we're doing is trying our very best to give us the tools that we need to live as Watchman Nee would call, a normal Christian life, as we would call an exemplary Christian life because of the standards we have today, as we see the world beginning to implode because the Lord is coming soon. And even if he's not, even if this is just setting the stage for some end-time prophecy, I mean, we do have Israel, you know, back in their land. And so we do know that the generation that sees the fig tree bloom, the generation that sees Israel back in their land will uh, see the coming of the Lord or the movement in that direction. One of the things that has to happen is our nation has to be devalued because there is no protector of Israel by the time the end times come. There's no United States. There's no incredible military. There's no powerful economy of our nation where we can bully ourselves around. We're at best a third world nation at that time. And I've shared those passages with you in Ezekiel. The scholars believe talk about our nation. And so we need to be ready to be prepared to meet the Lord, to be able to stand before him and hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. So because of that, I want to tell you what we're going to be doing for the next couple, maybe months. On Sunday morning and Tuesday evening, on Sunday morning, we're going to be looking at what we believe and make sure that we believe that and make sure that we just know, not just cognitively believe it, but we're actually committed to that. We're resolute on what we believe, not about just the doctrines of God, but what we believe about God and about man and about each other. And, you know, it's kind of a checkup time. We're going to begin that today. And as I share this with you, you'll understand why. On Tuesday, we're going to be uh, looking at the book of Jude, which talks about apostasy, which talks about uh, the end times and what's going to be happening to the spiritual fervor and temperature of those people who claim to be Christians. It is an absolute frightening book, the last book before the revelation. And we're going to be talking about that verse by verse, probably word by word. But in everything that we do, the emphasis of all the themes are going to be how we can grow closer to him and how we can glean from these verses, not just head knowledge, but how to experience a true revival, how to be on fire for the Lord Jesus Christ, how to live the kind of life that he has ordained us to do. So this week, I was telling Karen, it's really amazing. I go through uh, the My Utmost for His Highest, and I do it on Logos Bible software. And so it's not like I have a book that I go through. It's on a computer screen. And sometimes I miss a day. And so because I underline everything in yellow, if I miss a day, my commitment is that I will go back and pick that day up. And, and so I was, uh, I was doing, you know, the, the one for each day this week. And I remembered I needed to go by and pick one up. And so I went back to January and I looked and yes, there was one in January that I forgot, which is this one right here. And it was like the Lord himself had me forget that one in January to bring it to my remembrance just this week for me and for you. I mean, this is so perfect to what we've been talking about that I, I wrote it down here. And again, if you've looked at My Utmost for His Highest, it was written a hundred and something years ago. It's long run on sentences. It's some language that is a little bit archaic. But if you'll read it, I think you'll be amazed at this. And here's what he says. 
Am I spontaneously kind to God as I used to be? Really? I never thought about being kind to God. Or am I only expecting God to be kind to me? Am I full of the little things that cheer his heart over me? Or am I whimpering because things aren't going hardly with me? There is no joy in the soul that has forgotten what God prizes. It is a great thing to think that Jesus Christ has need of me, like when he said, give me to drink at the woman at the well. How much kindness have I shown him in the past, this past week? Have I been kind to his reputation in my life? God is saying to his people, you are not in love with me now, but I remember the time when you were. Remember last week's sermon about from the heights in which you've fallen. I remember the love of thine espousals. Am I full of the extravagance of love to Jesus Christ as I was in the beginning when I went out of my way to prove my devotion to him? Does he find me recalling the time when I did not care about anything but himself? Am I there now or have I become wise literally in my own mind over loving him? Am I so in love with him that I take no account of where I go? Or am I watching for the respect due me, weighing how much service I ought to give? If, as I recall what God remembers about me, I find he is not what he used to be to me, let it produce shame and humiliation, because that shame will bring the godly sorrow that works repentance. And that's the last two weeks in a nutshell, is it not? And so I'm reading these words. Oh, God, I mean, you knew in January that I needed this today. And had I read it in January, I'd have never recalled it today. Because he's trying to communicate a message to us that we need to, to love him more than we ever have. You know, we talked about resolutions. Not New Year's resolutions. I, I make a New Year's resolution. I'm going to lose 30 pounds. Yeah, that works well. You know, I'm going to go to the gym every single day. And I talked to the people at Planet Fitness. And they said, uh, when I first joined, and, uh, you know, there's about 200 people in Planet Fitness. And I asked them, this was a long time ago. And I asked them, how many members do you have? We have 15,000 members at 10 bucks a person. I'm calculating. But there's never more than like 200 people here. No, there's not. He says, everybody joins Planet Fitness in January. And they don't mind paying 10 bucks a month. And they go for about 10 days, they said. And in 10 days, the numbers start dropping down. And by the end of January, their attendance is pretty much like it's always been. And yet for 10 bucks a month, you don't want to cancel it because that makes you feel like a loser. If it was 50 bucks a month, I can't afford that if I'm not going to go. But for 10 bucks a month, it's no big deal. And, and this, this is not the kind of resolutions we're talking about. These are lifelong commitments. They're mission statements. They're vision statements that you judge everything by. For example, last year, Morgan and Brian, really, it's really Morgan, was looking at their finances. And Brian was going back to school to be a counselor. And so he wasn't able to work. And so pretty much she was the only one bringing the money into the family. And they realized that they had a lot of expenses. They had a car truck payment of his and some other expenses, just like you and I do. So they made a decision. They made a decision that they're not going to buy anything. It was called a no-buy decision. Well, what does that mean? Well, that we don't buy anything. We don't buy anything that we don't absolutely need. And that's that's all joy. That's all little things that we get. That's me getting my Diet Cokes at, uh, at QT or something. And we don't buy anything. And we take every dime we're not spending for a year. We commit to this and we pay off debt. Okay. And then over the year, I was talking to her about that. I mean, coffee. Pull up the church. And everybody comes in a cup of coffee that they stopped at the store to get us a buck or two bucks or Starbucks. It's seventeen fifty. or the joke. Anyway, you know, we don't do that anymore. I'm going to do without that. Really? Yeah. You know, how about if we go to a movie? No, that's not a need. That's a want. Fact is we're done. How about we cancel Netflix or how we cancel this or stuff of that nature? And what happened is Morgan and Brian 
primarily Morgan. Morgan and Brian made a decision. And the decision was everything we do money-wise has to filter through this grid that we're absolutely resolved to do, we're dogged, determined to do, that unless it passes the grid of the mission statement that we've declared as a family for 12 months, it doesn't get done, no exceptions. You know, when you make decisions like that, it's kind of hard because to me, the joy in life is going by stopping the store and grabbing a drink, you know, or something of that nature. Just, you know, it's, it's, not, it's to me, it's not the big purchases. There's no boats or planes, you know, golf clubs or stuff like that in my yard, but, but it's the nickel and dime stuff that I absolutely love. I don't enjoy eating a meal. I love snacking. You know what I mean? And, and it's sometimes those are tough decisions. And, you know, when we make a resolution, it means to be firmly determined and unwavering on a decision that we make. And that, that can be a resolution on how you spend money. It can be a resolution on eradicating sin for your life. It can be a resolution or resolutions like Jonathan Edwards put here, that these are some resolutions that I will not yield on and I will not at all violate. And if you will study them, you will find that making resolutions about the holiness of God and lining your own life up to that is the single trait that separates what we would call biblical heroes from everybody else. You go look at all the heroes of the Philadelphia church age or the people that you admire today, and every single one of them at some point in life had a crisis of a moment where they made some resolutions. Martin Luther, here I stand. I can do no otherwise. I will not recant. Come what may. And unless we do that in our spiritual life in areas that we're struggling with, nothing ever changes. It is insanity to do the same thing today that you did yesterday, but expect different results. And a long time ago, I heard a wise man say this, and he was saying it not in a spiritual context, but a financial context. And he says, if things are going to change, you got to change because things won't change, but you can. And it works exactly that way when it comes spiritually. And so, in business and in organizations, what they do is they come up with something called a mission statement. Here's a mission statement, and this is the mission of, of who we are and what we do. And so, therefore, every decision we make has to line up with our mission statement. And if it doesn't line up with our mission statement, then we're not going to do it. And then you have a vision statement sometimes, which tells people how you're going to accomplish the mission. Literally, Mission statement is a formal summary of the aims and values of a company or an organization or an individual. So, Steve, what is your mission statement? Uh, I don't know. Do churches have mission statements? All the time. And a church mission statement is pretty much a one-sentence statement describing the reason the church exists and is used to help guide decisions about priorities, actions, and responsibilities. Columbia International University, which owned the, the, the New Life 91.9, had a mission statement to know him and make him known, which is kind of a popular one today. Everything we do has got to be focused on knowing him or making him known. Therefore, whenever we had concerts and we would have, um, I would put shows together and stuff of that nature. We have to have a gospel presentation being presented. When I used to book tours in, they would get offended at that. No, we, we just about the music. If it's about the music, we're not bringing in because we have to have a gospel presentation presented because our ob object is not to sell tickets and play music. It's to know him and make him known. And since a lot of the lyrics in contemporary Christian songs doesn't exactly make him known, we want a gospel presentation. We bring somebody in and, and you know that you went to the shows that we did because it was all governed by a mission statement. So I basically looked at some church mission statements, starting with the small ones and kind of expanding them out. And I was really shocked because I picked some churches that you may know, you may not. I do because it's what I do. And some of these churches are heretical. Some of these churches are very liberal. Some of these churches are really solid. And you can tell by their mission statements of what they're all about. Let me just give you a couple of these. 
City on a Hill, Melbourne, Australia. Really good music. They, their uh, mission statement is the standard one that so many people have, so many churches have, to know Jesus and make him known. High Point Church, Memphis, Tennessee. Love God, love people, make disciples. I like that one. Love God, love people, make disciples. That kind of sums it up. That, that's good. Red Rock Church, a little more edgy, a little more contemporary, a little more cool. We exist to make heaven more crowded. That's a nicer way of saying that one of our cooler way of saying one of our missions is evangelism. Fellowship Church in Grapevine, Texas. Reach up, reach out, reach in. Gag. You know, I I understand what they're talking about. Worship, evangelism, discipleship, transformation church. Durham Grace Church up in Charlotte does exactly the same thing. The Brooklyn Tabernacle Church, which from comes the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir, and their wonderful music is about worship. says, a church for worshiping God and loving others. Community Christian Church in Illinois, helping people find their way back to God. I'd like to examine that a little bit more, but, but that's this church, it seems like, has more of a, we're ministering to those people who have been disenfranchised by church. I totally understand that. T.D. Jakes, the Potter's House in Dallas, Texas. We are the voice and the hand that encourages people to change their lives with hope, comfort, and peace. What? arrogance. You're not the hands and you're not the voice that encourages. Christ is. But if you know T.D. Jakes, this is very symbolic of what his church would stand for. Gateway Church, Southland, Texas. To help each person at Gateway, not necessarily everybody, but at Gateway, believe in Jesus, belong to a family, become a follower, and build God's kingdom. Okay. Okay. The Perimeter Church, Duluth, Georgia. To make and deploy which, again, if you know the Perimeter Church, that's what they do. They try to satellite churches everywhere to make and deploy mature and equipped followers of Christ for the sake of family, community, and global transformation. That sounds a little social gospelish to me. Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, D. James Kennedy, for those of my generation, church, all about changing culture and government. One of the founders of the moral majority way back when. Here's what he says. We equip people to develop a biblical worldview. That's a good thing, but that's that's their focal point. Share the gospel, build healthy relationships, transform community, and renew culture. Can you see the emphasis of the institutions here? That's what this church is committed to. That's their mission statement. Mars Hill, who a former pastor founder is a heretic, says this. Living out the way of Jesus in missional communities, announcing an arrival of his kingdom, working for a measurable change among the oppressed. Okay, I'll move on. Hillsong, serious doctrinal issues, really good music. To reach and influence the world by building a large Christ-centered, Bible-based church. No, Christ is going to build his church. Your job is to exalt him in the kingdom, changing mindsets and empowering people to lead and impact in every sphere of life. Redeemer Presbyterian Church, liberal social gospel church, to build a great city for all people through a gospel movement that brings personal conversion, community formation, social justice, and cultural renewal to New York City and through it to the world. That's okay. That's their, that's their goal and their mission. When you go there, you know exactly what you're going to be taught. New Hope Christian Fellowship in Honolulu. I love this one. To present the gospel of Jesus Christ in such a way that turns non-Christians into converts, converts into disciples, and disciples into mature, fruitful leaders who will in turn go into the world and reach others for Christ. I could hang with this guy, you know? And then Second Baptist Church, Pastor Jeffries. This is the best mission statement I have ever heard. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, the Great Commission, Matthew 28. I like that, don't you? Mission statements. They're based on beliefs, and they're based on what a person values. Everyone in here has certain beliefs, but more importantly, Everyone in here has certain things that you value. 
If we were to take a sheet of paper out and write down your mission statement, which we're not today, uh, your mission statement, um, no guarantee that won't happen in the future, but we're not doing it today. You would write down what you believe about God, what you believe about man, what you believe about your purpose, and you would write down the things that you value. Such Some people value evangelism, our, our community, our, our missions, and, and worship. Some people are, are all just about worship, or now the new buzzword is about social justice and we'll talk about that at another time. When we talk about making a resolution, before you can even make a resolution, you have to have almost a personal mission statement. You have to determine some things that you believe, some things that are passionate in your heart about Christ. First steps in coming to grips with a set of resolutions is to find out what your own set of resolution is and to write down what you believe and what you value. And these, of course, become the guiding principles in your life. What I value, for example, would be holiness. Let's say that one of the key areas in your life that God has communicated to you is holiness. I want to live holy to him. You wake up in the morning and the first prayer that you pray before you even get out of bed is, Lord, I totally commit myself to you. I am your vessel to use any way that you want. Would you guard my mind, my eyes, my ears, and especially my mouth that anything I think or see or bring in will only bring you glory. God, I just want to live for your glory all day today. And then if you're like me, you've usually blown up by lunchtime or maybe earlier, and then you have to go back to spiritual breathing and recommit that because sometimes unholy thoughts just pop in, do they not? And so, but that's, that's my commitment. And so you wake up in the morning and you walk out and you see your children and you have um, breakfast with your wife and you get on the phone and you deal with some clients or you're driving to work and everything that you do, every interaction is filtered through that holiness. I want to love them with the eyes of Jesus. I want to think good thoughts about them when somebody cuts you off in traffic. No. No, I cannot allow myself to say those words under my breath because I'm trying to live a holy life. For example, Some of your things that you may value may be love. Some of the things that you may value may be truth or doctrine. Some of the things may be be worship. It's it's up to you. But we write those statements that what we do and we make those resolutions is, God, everything that I do is going to be filtered through this grid of you. And so I started writing mine. And I don't know how to share this with you anymore than just share some of the things the Lord was showing me. And this is not all going to get done today because I was just looking at one area of my life. The Lord asked me, Steve, what do you believe? I believe a lot of things. I know first and foremost, what do you believe about me? I believe you're sovereign more than anything. You know, God is also love and I believe he is love. But, but for me, The most profound, and yours may be different. This is your mission statement. But the most profound aspect of who God is for me is that he is sovereign. And maybe it's because being a man and being a pastor and being a father and being a husband, I am an authority uh, in some of those areas. Maybe it's the fact that being prideful, I don't like authority. You know, being an American, I chafe sometimes at authority. Maybe, I mean, I don't know. But the fact that God is sovereign. What does that mean? I want to break it down. And I want to think about the attributes of God. I mean, what does it mean for God to be sovereign? He's it. He's a supreme ruler. There's no appeal. You can't go any higher than him. He is all in all. He is everything. There's, that He is the creator. He's the final arbiter. Or arbiter. And in other words, I, I, can't, I, I can't appeal to him. There's nobody else I can say, hey, look, look he's, would, you, would you talk to him for me? It doesn't work that way. He is complete. He is all in all. There's nowhere to go beyond him. None. Now, we don't have time to do that this morning. But I would suggest you go home. And you just think about what this means. He is it. Nowhere place to go but him. And why would we want to go any place anyway? Because there's all these other attributes about the fact that he's not a despot and he's not, you know, some, some cruel, evil political ruler, that he is a father and he's a loving father and he's a good father and with grace and mercy and 
I mean, the songs that Levi sang today about seeing Christ and being embraced in his arms. I mean, that's the kind of father he is. But there's no one higher than he is. All of a sudden, you can just rest in that. Gosh, you know, I got all these minions out here and all these evil people out here that are trying to abuse me and take things from me. And they're trying to hurt me and harm me and malign me because of who I am in Christ or they don't like me or just because of the fall. I'm living in a a government that that, uh, my rights seem to be eroding away and, and, you know, things are tough at work and I'm having personal problems with some of my close family members and my body seems to be decaying and I'm, which happens and I'm getting, I'm getting older and, and there's this worry. What about my children and my grandchildren and my great grandchildren? What's going to happen to them? And you begin to, well, wait a second, wait a second. God is sovereign. I mean, I'm worrying about things way beyond my pay grade. I'm worrying about things I was never instructed to worry about. I was never given the permission to worry about those. The Lord tells me that because he is sovereign, that I'm to come to him with childlike faith. So we just, you know, it's like me picking up Maddie and holding Maddie. And she, she doesn't think about things going on in the world, the evil and that. She just knows that I love her and I will take care of her and I would never, never do anything to hurt her. Because to her, I'm sovereign. But to us, God is sovereign. I mean, he is all-powerful. He's omnipotent. He can do anything that he wants. There's nothing beyond his power. I, I know, but, but just because he can, you know, I, I don't really, I don't think, think he will. I mean, his power is unfathomable in Ephesians chapter 3, the doxology at the end. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we can ask or even conceive in our mind, to him be the power forever in the church through Christ Jesus in us. We have access to an all-powerful sovereign God who calls us his children. I mean, we are slaves but he has elevated us from the point of slaves to friends in the book of John, from friends to sons, and from sons to heirs. Oh, my goodness. That's what he has done for us. I have a real problem, God, and I don't know if I should take it to you because I don't know if you can handle it. Really? He is infinite. There's no limit, no end to what he has done. Well, Lord, I see how you worked in the past, and I guess you're only limited to work that way in the past. He's not. He can do infinitely more than he's ever done in the past. You cannot put him in a box. As I'm beginning to to try to formulate what I truly believe about God, just taking the fact that he's sovereign and omnipotent, and meditating on those, and thinking about those, and and start looking at some scriptures about those, it changes your whole view about everything that has a tendency of bringing us down. Psalm 115, in the psalm, the enemies of God were trashing God. They were making fun of God. And the people of God, like you and I, were incensed at that, but they, they wanted God to know that this isn't about us. This isn't about us. It's about you, the sovereign one. So it's not to us, Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory. We're only doing this for your name because of your mercy, because of your truth, because the Gentiles and the evil say, so where is their God? In an act of derision. If God was all powerful, then these terrible things wouldn't happen. Good people wouldn't die. Bad people wouldn't live prosperous lives. Babies would never be aborted. Children would never be abused. Marriages would never fall apart. I mean, if where is your God? They're defaming the name of God. And the people here in Psalm 15 realize that he is sovereign. And so they say that marvelous statement. I'll tell you where our God is. He's in his heavens. He does whatever he wants. And if he wanted to end this right now, it'd be ended. And if he wanted to crush you, you'd be crushed. And if he wanted us to persevere under severe persecution to show you how good and gracious he is, we shall. Because joy is found in the morning from an evening of suffering. 
Whatever God chooses to do, he will do because he's in his heavens and he does what he pleases and he is sovereign and he has chosen me from the foundation of the world as a slave and has declared me a son and an heir. I will give my God honor during all things because he is sovereign. And all of a sudden, when you start reiterating that, it becomes like a a life commitment to you, like a resolution. A couple of these other verses here. Isaiah 46, 8 through 10. I love this discussion going on. Remember this, for those of you who need to recall the heights from which we've fallen. And show yourselves men. Recall to mind, not just you men, but you transgressors. You fallen men. Just remember this. Remember about God. Remember the former things of old, for I am God. Remember what I did. Remember what I've done. And there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, because I am sovereign. I know everything. I see the end from the beginning. I am all-powerful. Remember how I brought you out of Egypt. Remember how I created the universe with just a thought. Remember all the wondrous things I have done for you, O men, O transgressors, and act like men, that there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. That's his sovereignty. He knows what's going to happen tomorrow. Nothing happens outside of his permissive will. God never I heard a preacher say this one time, and it made a profound impact on me. And he simply said this, has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurs to God? Nothing. He knows all. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none other. I am God, and there's none like me. I declare the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things that are not done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do whatever I want to do because I am in my heavens and I do what I please. That's a sovereign God. And if you're fearful of that, it means that you have a faulty conception of who God is. Like he's going to punish us for failures that we've done when Christ has already paid the penalty for all of that. Psalm 135, verse 5 and 6. For I know the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all other so-called gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and in earth and in the seas and all the deep places, areas that I I cannot even know what's down there. I, I have no clue. But whatever God pleases to do, he is going to do because he is sovereign and he is sovereign everywhere. And there's no place in his universe hidden from his sovereignty, including you and including me. One more. Psalm 24. Yeah, but I'm an independent contractor and I call my own shots and I'm a free man and I'm going to do what I want. No, no. You've been bought with a price. We talked about this on Tuesday. You're a a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the greatest master of all. And again, not slavery like we think of in African slave trade in the history of our nation, but slavery like it was when the book was written in the Roman Empire. For the earth is the Lord in all its fullness. Everything is good and complete about that. The world and all those who dwell in them. Who do you belong to? The Lord. You belong to him, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Everything created, everything we think that belongs to us belongs to him. And the very breath that we have, some sort of energy that nobody can explain, that this electrical current that keeps our heart beating time after time after time after time until God decrees we're done, all belongs to him. So why are we so afraid to give him our little trinkets and toys that we're all going to leave behind anyway? God alone is sovereign. I want to get you, if you would, to turn to Revelation chapter 4. I'm not going to have time to even finish this today. And I want you to see what creatures far more powerful than you do with his sovereignty. You and I are human beings. We are frail. We do not have eternal bodies. We do not have supernatural strength. 
We do have the capacity to have a relationship with God. We have been given free will. But when John is taken up into heaven, and Isaiah has the, the same vision, when he's taken up into heaven, he sees these spectacular creatures that are around the throne of God proclaiming his sovereignty and his glory over and over and over again. Look at Revelation chapter 4. Let me just read this. It says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you the things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat was like a jasper and a sardis stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes. And they had crowns of gold on their head. And from the throne proceeded lightning and thunder and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures, full of eyes, front and back. Something that John had never seen before. No human had ever seen it. He's trying his best to describe it. The first living creature was like a lion and the second living creature like a calf. And the third creature had to face like a man and a fourth living creature was like a flying eagle and these four living creatures each having six wings this is from ezekiel were full of eyes all around and within and they do not rest day or night saying god is sovereign and deserves glory holy 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 lord god almighty who was and is and is to come And when that proclamation of God's sovereignty is given, the 24 elders worship just like we do, right? They see the power and the sovereignty of God, and they understand their place as mere created beings. And we, of course, respond just like they do. Verse 9. Whenever the living creature gives glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and lives forever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will, our God is in his heavens and he does what he pleases. They exist and were created. Does that ever happen to you when you worship the Lord? That you're so overwhelmed with his sovereignty and his majesty and his omnipotence that you fall down before him and cast everything of value about you, the crowns given to you at his feet, and just praise him for how worthy he is. No. Because we put God down in a little box that we give him the glory we want to. And we are not concerned, as the Oswald Chambers quote, for his reputation. Because it's all about us until you realize who he is. Son of man comes out and has a scroll. John sees this scroll and it realizes in this scroll with seven seals on it that, that is, is, is the answer to the end times. It's the answer to what's going to happen in the future. And, and they looked in all of heaven to find someone who was worthy to, to, to break the scroll. And there was no one found. Verse number eight of chapter five. Christ comes. And picks up that scroll as the only one worthy to break the seals. Verse 8 says, Now when he, Christ, had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and a golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, You are sovereign God, and you deserve our glory. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, no longer slaves, and we shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and a number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands and thousands of angels. 
saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such that are in the sea and all of them I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. And then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. Wow, sounds like church, doesn't it? That's what happens when you understand who a sovereign God is. Now, if I had time, I would take you through the half dozen other times where praise breaks out in heaven. And every time it does, it extols the virtues of God. When we get ready to pray to him, rather than praying to him like an equal or praying to him like somebody that's going to do our bidding, try spending some time just exalting him for who he is. It is the most humbling thing you'll ever do. God, you are sovereign. I am nothing. You are incredible. I am debased. The only value that is in me is what you have given me. And all of a sudden, these resolutions become coming to your mind when it comes to prayer. I want to honor God for who he is. I want to spend time worthy of who he is. Let me just bring this to a close. I told you that, first of all, I believe that God is sovereign. But what does that mean? I mean, how does that help me? What does that mean in real life? Because we all live in the, what what have you done for me lately kind of mentality, where God is good as long as he meets my needs. You know, most popular Christian book out was The Purpose Driven Life. And The Purpose Driven, of course, is your purpose. And then the second most popular book is how to have your best life now because it's what we want. I'll embrace Christ, but I need to know what the payoff is. So if I believe God is sovereign, what does that mean? How does turning to him as a truly sovereign God impact my life? How am I going to respond to knowing I am not in charge? By the way, it is a deception for you to think that you are. I was reading this account, and I'm just going to talk about it in a minute. I was reading this account of a man and an ant to try to explain God's sovereignty. And you've done this, I'm sure. You're sitting at the kitchen table, and you see this ant coming. Man has no clue of who you are. And he's just walking around the kitchen table, and your first reaction is to crush him, or I can't believe there's an ant in the house, or that's really irritating. Maybe if you got nothing to do, you'll look at him really closely and, and watch this ant just, just going about his way, doing what he wants to do. The ant isn't even conscious of the fact that you're sitting there, and yet you hold life and death and his future in your very hands. And just because you can crush him doesn't always mean you will. Being sovereign doesn't mean that you have to intervene in every single person's life immediately the way they want you to. You choose to do what you will. Sometimes I have crushed the ants. Have you? And sometimes I've just watched them, kind of marveled at that. It's a picture of sovereignty. You know, God is sovereign over everything, but to recognize the ant, recognize my sovereignty and recognized I was there and could crush it at any minute. Do you think it would change the, am I not supposed to be here? I'm going to head back outside. You know, I mean, I mean to, to recognize who he is. If you understand who God, how sovereign God is, it means that worry and doubt and fear and apathy and depression and even worldliness will have no allurement to you anymore. Why should I worry about finances when the sovereign God says, if I seek him first and his righteousness and his kingdom, and declaring his, him as sovereign, he has promised to take care of all my needs. Maybe not my wants, but all my needs. Well, why would I worry? Why would I doubt what's going to happen when God already knows the answer to that question? I don't know who I'm going to marry. You know, I don't know what's going to happen here. I'm, uh, I thought it was going to work out differently, but it didn't. And now I'm 30 years old and I don't have a husband, you know, so I'm really worried about that. Why? What, does God not have somebody picked out for you? Or maybe he doesn't. But does, I mean, is, is God going, yeah, I don't know. I tried, but you messed it up three times. You know, I wish I could work it out for you, but I can't. Why would we worry about those things? If God sees the end from the beginning, if he's truly sovereign and he knows what's going to happen tomorrow and I know him Isn't that enough? God, I don't know if I'm going to get the job, and I don't know if I'm not. You know, but Lord, whatever happens, you're sovereign. And so you walk into the job interview, realizing that God already knows 
And he still loves you one way or the other. How in the world could we be apathetic or worldly when we're dealing with a sovereign God who all of creation will fall down on its knees and declare that you are powerful and great and worthy as the lamb to be slain and bring in power and glory on his throne. Nothing matters in life but that. And plus, if you realize God is sovereign, you will find that most of the problems that we have in life can simply be answered by the fact that your God's too small, that you don't understand the sovereignty of God. And I'm really worried about this. I don't know what's going to happen. And, you know, my, it's like, like a Heather and Dylan, you know, their baby, they're going through a really tough time right now. Uh, I, I can't imagine what it would be like being separated from your family and being up there and having a bone marrow transplant and, you know, and all the, the medical things. And Lord, praise the Lord, you know, it'll work out or it won't. Um, you know, you're either going to do it or you don't. And, and the fact is that I'm not going to worry about this because God is sovereign. He already knows how it's going to work out. If you understood the sovereignty of God, you will understand that each one of us, God knows the very day, number of days we're going to live before we live the first one. Scripture says that. So if you really think that through, I don't know what that day is, but let's say that day for me is next Friday. Until next Friday, I'm invincible. But next Friday, when I wake up in the morning thinking I have the rest of my life in front of me, I'm already dead. God already knows. And so you pray for a healing and you pray for God to do something. But he already knows. What's going to happen? And when you understand God's sovereignty, you can rest on that. And the worries go away because our God is not too small. Our God is worthy of all this praise. He's omnipotent. We'll talk about these in the weeks to come. He's omniscient. He knows everything. Everything. There's, God doesn't learn anything. He knows it all. And the, he's omnipresent. He's always there. He's everywhere. At the same time, you're never alone. There's nothing that can happen to you that God's not aware of. And there's no place, no pit of depression, no deep, dark soul of the night, no abyss where you feel like it's just you against the world, that he's not know exactly where you're at. And he's present with you in every single one of those. Because our God is a huge God. In addition, he's holy, faithful, even when we're not. He's full of wisdom. He's the embodiment of wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1.30 talks about that. He's full of mercy, abounding in grace. He overflows in goodness. He, he's the definition of love. He's immutable. He doesn't change. I love that. I change. I, I thought you said that, that it was okay, and now you changed your mind. Yeah, I thought about it. I, I ain't going to do it. He doesn't do that. He never changes. He's the same yesterday and today for forever. He's self-sufficient. He has no need. So God never responds to us selfishly. Like you and I respond to each other selfishly. He doesn't do that. He's just and he's full of glory. Plus, he chose you and I from the foundation of the world to be his, to be his slaves that he loves enough to call friends. So he moves from friends to calls us his children, and then his sons, who deserve a double portion of the inheritance, and then his heirs, and not just a heir, but a joint heir with the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you believe that about God? I do. And this week as I thought about it, and I meditated on it, and I began to, to realize the implications of that, it began to change how I viewed all of life. And so for the next couple of weeks, we're just going to go through some of the truths there are about God and try to make them personal to us so that when you begin to make your spiritual mission statement or your vision statement or your set of resolutions about how you're going to respond to God, you'll be responding to him based on who he is and you'll have an opportunity to determine whether you truly believe that or don't. Amen. 